Hey guys, it's David. I want to introduce this episode to you because we introduce another two-part interview. In this first part, Michelle is going to define the phrase school-to-prison pipeline. Then we're going to play the first part of our interview with Victoria Law, freelance writer, and there'll be more on that in a minute. During the interview, we discuss the prison system in general with Law. We are so excited about this interview, and we'll provide a link to the show notes that takes you to her website where you can access more of her work as well. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. This is Michelle. And David. And we'd like to welcome you to our fourth episode of Expiration Date. Fourth already. Wow. It's crazy. For this episode, we're going to talk about the school to prison pipeline. Mm. And I would just like to thank everybody that has given us feedback, had conversations with David and I, and uh, emailed us, written to us, and liked us and reviewed us. Today, uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to try to not be as scripted, and I'm going to try to speak very slowly, because I have a tendency to talk fast and mince my words. And I will reference the previous episode and just say, it's the passion coming out. <laughs> I think David is just nice. So this episode, the part where I talk is actually not going to be that long because it's really not a difficult thing to explain or understand. It's pretty straightforward. Um, we're going to be discussing the school to prison pipeline, and we're going to go back a little bit into the history of educating black people in America. So we're going to go back to slavery. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time there because, again, it's not complicated. So we're going to go over a brief history of education of African-Americans in the United States. First African slaves were brought here in 1619 and kept enslaved until 1863 when we had the Emancipation Proclamation and a brief civil war. That is common knowledge. So historically, it was not unheard of to teach your slaves to read and write. Sometimes they needed to do complicated work with accounts and houses and organizing things. So it was not uncommon for about 20% of slaves to read and write in English. As we see the abolitionist movement rise throughout the 1830s, um, we saw the passage of strict anti-literacy laws for enslaved peoples. And then we had the Civil War, and we had separate education for black children and white children. The, the, they didn't even consider, like segregation wasn't a law because nobody would educate black and white children together for the most part. There were some notable exceptions, but... This is across the board? Not relative. Like, yeah. Everywhere in the everywhere United States? In the United States. And then throughout the 50s and 60s, we see separate but equal and the beginnings of desegregation. To understand where we are today, you have to understand how desegregation was done in the worst possible way. At the time, African-American schools begged for integration to go with teachers first, to integrate black teachers into white schools but of course, they recognized that that would probably be much more successful. So they fired most black teachers and sent black children into a sea of white people that did not want them to be there. We see kind of the echoes of this, the modern iteration of this in the criminal legal system, where state and private prisons heavily censor what materials are allowed in their prison libraries and what materials that the prisoners have access to. And even in education programs in prisons, they are heavily, heavily censored. For example, 
Mein Kampf is available almost universally, but there are very few prisons that allow people to read the new Jim Crow. And also, usually the color purple and the bluest eye. Which, I don't know if you know what those books are, but they're about issues that affect the black community. Another thing we need to understand to tackle this big topic is the way that the American, that the government of the United States views education. Education has consistently been devalued in the United States, and we see literacy rates dropping all over the United States. This is for black and white people. A study came out recently from the Pew Research Center that said that we need to start measuring literacy in a more meaningful way. So if you measure literacy as what it means to be literate, a meaningful definition of literacy where somebody can look at a website and figure out what they need and click on the appropriate thing and get information that they need. If you look at meaningful literacy, as high as 52% of Americans are functionally illiterate. You're kidding me. No. 52%? More than half of Americans are functionally illiterate. Now, is this directly with web-based or computer-based things? Uh, the study actually did multiple mediums. mediums. They where they had people look at websites, they had people try to read a paragraph and then pick out that information like on a bar graph and their estimate is that 52% of Americans are functionally illiterate. So, what you're saying is that to meet a definition of being literate, all you need to do is pretty much write your name. It depends on how you define it. And so like if you google what percentage of Americans are literate, the first Google result is 99%, which anybody that works with the public knows that that is not the case. Hmm. When we look at education in America and the history of the education of African Americans in America, you see that things are getting worse in a lot of ways and that desegregation didn't necessarily make things better. How are things getting worse? Just because the literacy rates are dropping and the school to prison pipeline is increasing. So what we mean when we say school to prison pipeline, we mean in schools where traditionally punishment and discipline was metered out to the teachers or the parents, um, we see the police taking over. And what that does is it does several things. It gets kids used to having interactions with the police. It gets them into the system um, where they have a criminal record and it trains them that they are, it is okay that they are treated this way. So discipline is moving from the responsibility of teachers and administration to police officers. Right. Whereas traditionally kids might be suspended for bad behavior. Now we're seeing kids get arrested. And these stories, sometimes they go viral. Most of the time they do not. And we see kids getting arrested in schools. The youngest one was six. There was a case in Florida where a six-year-old girl got arrested because she didn't want to stop playing with toys. And so they decided to have the school resource officer arrest her. Um, What's a resource officer? It's just a cop. It's a fancy definition for a a, A a hired cop. Now, is this like... Is it paid by the school system to have this cop there? Or is it yes. placed uh, by the, the Well, precinct? it's probably different in different areas, but I believe they're paid by the school. What was the genesis of that? Like, why did that start happening? Well, schools started implementing in the 70s, 80s, 90s, zero tolerance policies where kids were not given any leeway for any mistakes at all. And we saw just a dramatic expansion of police involvement in kids' lives where we see things like they lock the kids in the classroom and raid their lockers or 
they arrest kids for quote unquote bad behavior, or we see just getting kids used to being terrorized by the police. Now, is this in all schools or is it in predominantly impoverished school districts or? It is not in all schools. Predominantly white schools usually may have one resource officer that usually just hangs out with the kids. But in inner city schools, it is terrible and they are not very dissimilar from prisons. I have a question and this reverts back to one of our previous episodes about broken window policing. Kind of like what came first? Was it the poverty and the or the crime? And how does that play into schools? And I mean, is it just an extension of that type of policing effort or what do you think? Well, I just from what I have read and if somebody has more thoughts on this, please share it with us. But it seems to me that this happened in the community first, the broken windows policing happened in the community first and then bled over into the schools as we see concerns about crime grow in the eighties and nineties. Kids started getting the public school system started catching up with what was happening in the community. And that makes sense that it would happen too, is it, as things just kind of expand and people problem solve, quote unquote, around all that. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all based on a fear of crime and the thought process that if we punish harshly and we punish young, less crime will be committed, which is just kind of a bananas way to approach it. Because if you if you approach it that way, then maybe sure crime statistics will go down. But you have to understand that when you do it that way, the child that you're doing it to has no value. Hmm. It doesn't seem like the right approach for development. I don't think it is because I wouldn't want my child to be treated that way. And I don't want anyone's children to be treated that way. But I guess after decades of being treated that way yourself, then you're almost numb or immune to it when someone treats your child that way. Mm -hmm. It's a way to get the state to sponsor education that promotes people to be treated like prisoners or kids to be treated like prisoners. I think you're working on a new form of slavery. And also, too, we need to clarify that public education is not the only problem. Public education is by far the biggest educator in the United States, but private schools and charter schools are growing exponentially. Private schools are openly privatized. They're privately funded. And so, um, which is different than a charter school. A charter school is run through a charter. They're publicly funded. Your tax dollars pay for charter schools. Is it a profit versus nonprofit thing for private schools? It can be, and it can they can be nonprofit or for profit. Charter schools can be are just run by the charter, but you can use them to make money. I'm going to link several sources for you guys to look at to dig deeper into what a charter school can be. And I'm not trying to be critical of them. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are very, very, very bad. What's the difference between a public school and a charter school? Because a public school is funded by tax dollars as well, right? Right. But I think it goes through the Department of Education. I think it comes from the state budget. Okay. And the charter school budget is different. Maybe somebody, if you know more about that, can clarify that for us. But it doesn't really matter for what we're talking about. So basically, you have public education, charter schools, private schools. The thing to remember with private schools and charter schools is they do not have teachers unions. Teachers are not allowed to unionize in these. And two, they do not have democratically elected school boards as public schools do. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that a lot of the design is to decrease the power of teachers and the community. To centralize the administration and government of it. And yeah, and if you work at a charter school, you know this, you see that you make a lot of the rules and there's not a lot of oversight. 
with charter schools and private schools, there are hugely powerful conservative lobbies that are trying to take over and hugely powerful, more liberal lobbies that are trying to take over. And again, I'm not assigning a value to either of those. All I'm saying is you don't have teacher unions and teachers unions and you don't have democratically elected school boards, which I find frightening. Now that we've got some of the history, we're going to go a little further into the what it looks like to be part of a school-to-prison pipeline. So education is one of the biggest indicators of success in America. It's also one of the biggest factors in whether you end up in prison or not. Education and employment are the strongest indicators of incarceration rates. In schools with poor and brown kids, you replace teachers with cops. And again, we see police having to fulfill a role that they should never be in. It trains kids to act like prisoners, and it trains other kids to be okay with it. In big cities, this is obvious. You see really strict rules in bigger schools. Kids have to follow. They have to line up, act like prisoners. In the more rural schools, it may not be as obvious, but if you have a child in school that just recently hired a security guard or a resource officer, ask about that. Go to your school's administration and ask why they're there, what they're doing, and tell your kid to watch for interactions that kids have with that officer. If your child is white and has positive interactions with that officer, tell them to ask kids at their school what their experience has been, especially if they're in a different class or a different race. So what we see when we put cops in schools in study after study, we see these policies disproportionately affect poor children and black and brown children. They are suspended and punished at a much higher rate. They get into the system much younger. And once they are labeled as a criminal, their chances diminish. Because as we have learned in previous episodes, once you are in this system, it is so hard to get out. So I'm really excited to play this interview with Victoria Law, and we can actually let her explain who she is. Victoria Law, freelance journalist and author covering issues of mass incarceration um, and author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-author of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reform. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and how you got into this work? Uh, So I am a freelance journalist and author. I began writing about issues of incarceration in the early 2000s. I got into this work or this interest around incarceration issues when I was in high school. I went to a school that we would now call a school-to-prison pipeline high school. For listeners who are not familiar with the term, it is a type of school that basically mimics the prison system. So it's often children whose families don't have a lot of resources. The school itself doesn't have a lot of resources. In my school, there were several thousand children. It was mostly Black, Brown, and immigrant children who were zoned for that school because people with more resources or friends in other neighborhoods would borrow their friends' addresses to send their children to that school. 
So every morning we lined up, we went through metal detectors, we had to put our belongings through one of those x-ray scanners that you would see at airports. There were lots of security guards. There were not extracurricular activities that really captured the imagination or the interest of a lot of students. And it was the perfect recruiting ground for gangs. So uh, one by one and two by two, my friends joined gangs, dropped out of high school and ended up getting arrested for gang-related activities. So I started looking at incarceration issues just as a, what is this giant thing that is suddenly a part of my life? And then later when I got to college, I started looking more critically at these issues and more carefully, and that's when I began writing about prison issues. And um, tell us about some of the challenges you face as a writer, um, working with people that have had their liberty taken away. Because I feel like a lot of people that I've had conversations with over the years think that really the worst part of prison is that your liberty is taken away, which is a huge, terrible thing about it. They don't realize how people are treated on the inside Mm -hmm. and how isolating and terrible it is. And especially the challenges you would face trying to interview people and get in contact with people and amplify their stories. Yes. So given that our nation is coming out of large swaths of the population sheltering at home for periods of time related to coronavirus, uh, we can actually think about the fact that when you're at home and you are unable to say go out because you are afraid of contracting the virus, you're afraid of exposing other people to the virus if you're quarantining. But if you imagine being told you can never leave a room the size of your bathroom, without, you know, except for maybe a few hours a day, or being in a crowded dormitory with a hundred other people that you can almost never get away from. So that is one very basic reality of prison, no matter how, uh, what the other conditions are, you are either stuck in a small cell or you are in a loud, crowded dormitory. Um, But then other issues that people face are lack of medical care. So in the United States, people in jails and prisons are the only people who have a constitutional right to medical care because the Supreme Court ruled that since they are wards of the state and they cannot go out and seek their own medical care, the state has to provide it for them. But it didn't specify that the state had to provide a certain level of medical care, a certain quality of medical care. So oftentimes this gets interpreted very loosely. And so going to say the doctor for thinking that you have a cough or a fever or something else can be very, very complicated and hard while you are behind bars. At the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we saw numerous instances in which somebody on a housing unit would get sick and be taken to the prison infirmary or the hospital. And other people would then try to go to the medical clinic to get tested or because they were scared. And in prisons, you cannot just get up and go from one part of the prison to another. You have to get permission each time and you can only go at certain times. And if you don't have permission to be in a part of the prison, then you can be punished. So unlike us on the outside, who if I'm feeling bad, I can go to the doctor. I might wait a long time. It might be crowded. It might not be a pleasant experience, but I have that freedom to do so. Uh, They could not. And in some places, they requested to go to the prison medical clinic and were actually met with pepper spray and violence by jail guards and prison guards rather than being told like, yes, you 
are worried that you might have this very infectious disease, you can go out there. So it's not just a loss of liberty, but it, it is also the loss of any sense of safety and bodily autonomy that you might have the right to go to the doctor or the ability to go to the doctor, the ability to be able to go to the shower when you need to. And it is also, prisons are very violent places, whether it is the violence of uh, other people who are incarcerated alongside you, the violence of prison staff who are supposed to be protecting you. And then there's the everyday violence and dehumanization. So for instance, when people go to visit their loved ones inside jails or prisons, their incarcerated loved one is subjected to a strip search before the visit. And then after the visit, presumably because the jailer, the prison wants to make sure that nothing is being smuggled inside or outside. But for many people in prison who have experienced past trauma and sexual violence, either as children or adults, this simply re-traumatizes them. And in many places, you know, there, there are not safeguards to make sure that people are not re-triggered and re-traumatized during this. And so there have been numerous anecdotal incidents where mothers have said to their children or their children's caregivers, please don't come and visit because as much as I love my children, I can't go through these strip searches before and after these visits. So I would rather not see my children than go through this. Well, and you have to see, because one thing we talk about in our first episode is that when I first learned about a lot of these issues, I thought, oh, these are, you know, these are due to like our system is broken. Mm-hmm. But really what I learned is this is intentional. Like it's built yes. to do this. It's built to isolate people, to be incredibly punitive to people and to traumatize people mm-hmm. that it's not a mistake. Like a lot of people think it is. Yes. Let me ask a couple of follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you said, you said one that while in prison, they can, Prisoners are subjected to punishment. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Can you yes. give me some examples of what that would be as far as your research and experience go? Yes. So punishments can range from losing what they call privileges, like the ability to ha- get visits or be able to shop at the prison commissary or the prison store. So prisons provide very meager basic supplies, which may or may not include an adequate amount of soap or shampoo. And people in prison often utilize the prison commissary or the prison store, which is the one place you can get other items. So you might be able to get, say, a better brand of soap. For women in prison, it might be the only place where you can get tampons. You might be able to get shampoo. Uh, you can get, you know, some snacks to to add to increase your your food intake or to like add to the prison diet. And so you might not you might be told you cannot go shopping for thirty days. And that might not seem like a huge penalty until you realize that perhaps not shopping for 30 days means your small bar of soap that the prison issues you runs out after week one and you have no more soap. Or if you are a menstruating woman in prison, it might mean that the couple of very thin, and it's been described to me sometimes as almost as thin as toilet paper, sanitary napkins that you have, uh, have been bled through and you are not able to buy tampons. Other privileges can be you can't get visits for a certain set of time or you can't use the phone. And it can range all the way up to we put you in solitary confinement, which is a single cell, which is, again, about the size of a small bathroom. So like an eight by 10, 10 by 12 cell 
by yourself in a row, in a unit where there's a row of cells in which you'd never get any human contact except for the guards who take you in or out. Supposed, it's supposed to be once a day. You're supposed to be allowed out of your cell at least one hour a day. Oftentimes that doesn't happen, but so people are locked in their cells, in these small cells for 23 to 24 hours a day. Uh, the only human contact, they, the human contact and visuals they have are from prison staff. But then there's also a cacophony of noise as people are yelling and screaming through the prison doors, either because they're trying to communicate with somebody across the way, or oftentimes because somebody is mentally ill and being in isolation just exacerbates their mental illness. So they are screaming and they are yelling and it's never quiet. So it's not like somebody is able to just sit in quiet in a small cell. It's being in this small confined area with chaos going on all around you. So the state prison systems are supposed to have a uniform set of rules. If you do X, then you get Y punishment. Um, in the jails, you know, of course, it jails are individual facilities run by the local sheriff. So these, these have different rules. But what is typically supposed to happen, at least in the prison system, is somebody commits an infraction and then they are supposed to have a hearing, especially if they're going to be put in solitary confinement. And, that, and then that hearing says, have you done this? And then they're found either guilty or not guilty and they're placed in solitary confinement. For more minor infractions, I believe that there's not a hearing necessary. So you can appeal a prison guard saying, I saw you out of the place where you're supposed to be. Like you weren't supposed to be out of your housing unit and I saw you there. I'm going to say 30 days, no commissary and you can appeal this. But this might take a long time and you just might get what has been reported is that oftentimes the people who decide on the appeals are the coworkers of the guard that wrote you up. So similar to the idea that police stick up for each other, people in prisons also stick up for each other. Also in part because you know that if you get on the bad side of your coworker, they might decide to perhaps not back you up if you actually get into a dangerous situation. And two, one of the things you said about the mandated healthcare before coronavirus changed the world, um, I'd become a stay-at-home mom, but I was a, a APN. I'm an APN, and um, we see. I would see a ton of guys from Cummins Prison here mm-hmm. in Arkansas, and the mandated healthcare that they have to have. Basically, they send me a prisoner who is in an advanced state of poor health mm-hmm. because they um, tried to have the primary care physician at the mm-hmm. facility treat them. Oftentimes mm-hmm. those physicians have had their licenses revoked, <laughs> but anyway, that's another subject, but, mm-hmm. and they would basically, what they would do is they would bring me the, they would bring the prisoner in course, totally shackled, totally mm-hmm. march them through. And they would sit in my chair and I would start to talk to them. And then I would realize that, Oh, this person needs weeks of care to correct this problem. That's been festering for, you know, however long. And I would have to write up this whole thing, justifying to the prison doctor you know, why I want to do what I want to do. And it never, ever happened. Like Mm -hmm. I never saw Mm -hmm. any patient more than one time, even though if they had not been incarcerated, I would see them multiple times. It was Mm -hmm. terrible, Mm -hmm. but maybe tell us, and I know you've mentioned some of these, but what are some blind spots that people that have no history of interaction with the criminal legal system 
may have? What are some big blind spots that you encounter? I think one that over 90% of convictions in courts happen as a result of a plea bargain. So it is not that people have gone to trial. It's not like Law and Order and all of these shows that you see on television where people get a trial of their peers. People end up going to court and they are facing draconian sentences and they're facing these very scary charges. And oftentimes these are people with few to no resources. Um, They're relying on a public defender who may be overworked, uh, may have a giant caseload, does not meet with them very often. If they come from a neighborhood that is often over-policed and criminalized, they've seen that other people have all been failed by the court system. So they agree to plead guilty to a lesser charge in exchange for a shorter prison sentence in order to avoid the longer prison sentence. So our prisons are filled with people who've pled guilty to something because they wanted to avoid the long process of a trial. Because even though the constitution gives us a right to a fair and speedy trial, in reality, you could be sitting there for six months or one year waiting for a trial, sometimes two years. Many people cannot afford bail which is an amount that is set by the courts to ensure that you come back to court. It is not supposed to be an amount set because you are deemed dangerous. It is supposed to say, if you pay this money and then you don't show up to court, you forfeited this $500 or this $1,000. But in reality, what it means is that people with few to no resources sit in jail, losing their job, losing their housing, uh, perhaps losing custody of their children, while they await this day in court. So sometimes people also just plead guilty because they know that it's time served and I can come home and I can, you know, try to argue with my job, my boss for my job back, or I can, you know, like, you know, figure out something with my housing so I don't lose my apartment or my house, my children don't go into foster care, all of these other ramifications. New York seems to have some momentum Mm-hmm. Um, for changing some of the major flaws in our system, like the push to end cash bail and things like that. What would you say to a state like Arkansas uh, that needs to get some hope that people could actually do something about these issues, that people could actually, that activists here could change the system? I think that looking at New York, but also looking at other places where people have banded together to change to change some of the conditions that send people to prison. So, I mean, if we look at, uh, you know, places like Illinois or Washington state, we can also see it's not just a big New York city or New York state mobilization, but people in other places get together and they say like, what can we do? You know, what are the issues that matter to us? What do we need to change? I mean, when looking at prison issues, there's a whole host of things to change, but you can start by saying like, you know, there's this issue that affects this many people. What can we do about this? Um, in New York State, incarcerated women, mostly or incarcerated people, but mostly mothers, banded together to pass the Adoption and Safe Families Act, Discretion Act, which said that it a judge could pause terminating a person's parental rights if they were if their children were in foster care because they were in drug treatment or incarcerated. So the judge didn't have to say automatically, like, you're not here. Um, You know, your children have been in foster care for, you know, 16 months. I'm terminating parental rights. But they could say, oh, but 
you know, Miss Smith, you know, sees her children regularly, calls her children, writes letters to her children, will be out next year. There's no reason to permanently separate her from her children. But this came about because people advocated and they built alliances with each other. So they reached out to other people who would be sympathetic to this. So it might be looking at people who are very pro-family to say like, do you believe that, you know, parents and children should be torn apart because somebody made a mistake, you know? Uh, Isn't prison supposed to be the loss of liberty, not the loss of your children, not the loss of the rest of your life, not the loss of anything that made your life meaningful to begin with. I mean, it's, it is supposed to be, you know, a temporary incapacitation and removal from the community, not you come out and your children have been taken away and you don't know where they are and everything else has been turned topsy-turvy. Or you could say, you know, we see a number of people coming home from prison to these areas and they don't have opportunities for housing or employment or anything that would help them reintegrate into society. Because do we want a society of people who have had all opportunities taken away from them? Or do we want people who are going to say, yes, I went to prison, but I've learned and I also want to be a productive member of society and contribute. I want to take care of my aging mother who has supported me through all these years and put up with my nonsense. I want to reconnect with my kids. Maybe I want to coach the little league team or, you know, like go volunteer at the food bank. So these are all opportunities for people to be part of their community. You know, maybe I want to like, you know, go, you know, do something with my church and they shouldn't just be ostracized and excluded. So how do we create a society so that that way people can actually reintegrate and be part of that society? Because it's not as if we don't need people to, you know, help you know, coach little league teams and, you know, help elderly people with their grocery shopping and all of these other needs that we as a society have. As we previously discussed on the podcast, we Mm -hmm. talked to a defense attorney last week um, and we actually asked her this same question. With America doing something totally unique with the expansion of the prison industrial complex, uh, one of our senators, Tom Cotton, has stated that he feels America has an under-incarceration problem. As an activist, how does that make you feel? Well, I think that Tom Cot- uh, people who think that America has an under-incarceration problem should think about the fact that the United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prison population. And if we think that incarceration makes us safer, we should then be the safest nation in the world. And we are not because incarceration does not make us safer. Uh, policing and prisons happen after somebody has committed a crime or harm or some sort of harmful behavior. Not, it is not a preventative measure. Your listeners may think back to yesterday and today and think about how many people they have murdered, maimed, raped, or harmed in the course of the past 48 hours. And most of your listeners would say, I have not. And they should ask themselves, did you not murder, maim, rape, or harm people going about your day because you were afraid of going to prison? Or did you not do any of these things because you don't do any of these things? So policing does not necessarily stop 
people from harmful behaviors. What does stop people from harmful behaviors is enabling them to is preventative measures. So for instance, more mental health care, more health care in general, housing. I noticed that one of the one of the top convictions for people in Arkansas was residential burglary. So what is happening in Arkansas that so many people are going to prison for residential burglary? What kinds of economic supports does Arkansas lack? What kinds of um, you know, housing and educational and employment supports does Arkansas lack? Like what are the underlying causes for that? Because what you don't want to do is to say, great, you did residential burglary, you go to prison for five years. You don't learn anything in prison. And when you come out, you have a record. Nobody wants to hire you. You have a five-year employment gap. And what are you going to do to put a roof over your head, to put food on your table, to even get a table in the first place? But then you're go- you have very few options, but then to go back to the behavior that originally sent you to prison. So do we want to be a nation of people who are worried that we are enabling more people to commit residential burglary? Or do we want to say, what do we need to do so that we don't have this problem anymore? Why is this such a huge problem in Arkansas? In 2018, Arkansas spent $61.25 per day per prisoner, which came out to about $22,356 per person per year. So if you think of all these people who committed residential burglary or uh, robbery, you know, what would $22,000 do towards fixing those conditions? What could be put in place? And that came out in 2018 to about $352 million. And so what could Arkansas do with $352 million that they're right now putting into the prison system, which is not necessarily keeping Arkansas safe. It is addressing harm after the fact. It is closing the barn door after the horse has already left. So why continue to put money into the system that has failed? Why not say, what are the solutions to addressing some of these harms that are happening? You know, how can we address, and people don't have to start big, they can start small. How do we address residential burglary? You know, so instead of saying like, how do we address murder? How do we address the fact that among the top 10 incarcer- you know, reasons for incarceration is residential burglary? We start with that. You know, what are, you know, $22,000 per person? What kinds of programs and supports could be put in these communities so that people are not resorting to this? That was just the first part of our interview with Victoria Law. We're going to play the rest of it after our Women in Prison episode, um, just so that we can go over some of the history and so you can better understand the issues that we're talking about. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or comments, please email us, expirationdatepodcast at gmail.com, and visit our Patreon to get some bonus content and be a subscriber. Please rate and review us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Thank you.